So, looking at Jeremiah 29 11 and lies that we have loved, I would start by asking you, what are you worried about today? And some might say nothing. So, I would just for most of us say, okay, start the clock. Like, it'll come up. And you might be as surprised as me that you're not worried about anything because you, you could go one minute, you can feel fine, and the next, all of a sudden, and circumstances might not change at all. The exact same circumstances. And you're walking and you feel light, you feel like, what a blessing to be alive right now, my life. And then no circumstances change. And then you feel, oh no, what if? Oh, this is terrible. So what's keeping you awake or that thing that just always seems to be there? Easy to say in our part of the world, housing, um, work, school, relationships, family. And then often people want someone like me, you know, it's, it's the role pastors have at times, office, title. Sometimes people want people like pastors to say, it's okay. It'll be okay. Some of us have known that role as parents to say it'll be okay. But it's a similar thing. You want the pastor to say, I know the struggle has been on your mind lately, that you face a lot of uncertainty. I might even say something like, that uncertainty is real. But I give you my assurance today that it will all be okay. It's going to work out. You're going to make it through this. Does that, you better now? I mean, people make a lot of money. Religious leaders, advertisers make a lot of money. Finding good ways to help people believe that and feel good about things. So if that's the case, we could simply head out and go for a walk. But we're talking about lies we've loved, so I hope you don't think that I'm saying it's okay is a lie. Not quite that. But obviously, as you know, that we would hear it differently. Last time, we talked about how God will only give you what you can handle, and the, the distorted truth in that. And the question we asked there is, what does it mean that God is watching over me, or watching over us? That's the real question at the heart of kind of a, a distorted assurance, like God will only give you what you, what you can handle, is what, is it, what does it mean that God's watching over me? Today, the question is, what about the future? Will I be okay? Will things work out? And if you tread carefully when you get to Jeremiah 29, 11. I have to tread carefully as a, as a speaker because I'm undoing a bit of a mistruth that many of us in this room, or many of you, I don't think I've done this. I've done a lot of, you know, just, I've said things that are not quite off, right, and off, and maybe even uh, out of context for sure. But with this particular verse, I don't know that I've ever used it in this way. Yeah, Ken checks everything, so he says, yeah, I never have. <laughs> um, and that is, that is Jeremiah 29, 11. You know the verse. For you know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. And the distortion is we write that in somebody's grad card. With, now, it doesn't mean we necessarily think this, but the context there is, you know, a little bit like, you're going to do great in school. Uh, you sometimes, or you'll get that job you want. So, amen, hallelujah, put it on the fridge, write it on some grad cards. But, this series is lies that we have loved. So, then we would ask ourselves, 
Does God not know the plan He has for us? Does He not have plans to prosper us? That's the word that we really get caught up with. It's not even, I know the plans I have for you, hope, future. We really like that word, prosper. <laughs> the verse isn't a lie, but how we've listened can be a lie. We've misheard it. But what I want to say to you is that the truth is better than the distortion. When we choose, when we misinterpret things and choose the easier thing, we're often missing better truth. And that's the case for this verse. Will I be okay? Will we be okay? So now we're in the role of a child with a parent, like a young child. A child that just needs to hear to some degree. It's going to be okay. They need an assuring parent, right? But most of you know by now that growing up isn't getting to the place where you are what you thought you would be when you were a kid, like that the adults kind of have everything under control. I mean, I know you don't really think that. But what maturity means is you become okay with the ambiguity and uncertainty, and you become capable of living a life in that uncertainty and ambiguity. But sometimes you just want the assurance again, the even, at times, false assurance. We know what it means to long for that voice. So into the void rush spiritual profiteers and marketers. Um, we used in the, in the work that I do on the podcast and stuff, or it was in something I wrote, I can't remember, um, in the podcast, uh, there was a televangelist who was selling a cube, and it was really cheap electronics, right? A couple, 50 cents, dollar to make, whatever. But the cube had a recording of him, 365 recordings of him doing little mini devotionals and affirmations. And the way to get the cube, I'm going to surprise you, send in a donation, obviously much more than the price of the cube, and you'll get this special gift. And it said things like, and then the ad for it, which I listened to, said, you may feel today like you're trapped. Is that you? Um, this is not how your story ends. Some dreams are waking up today, and then you can hear that it's like a state, it's like an arena at the church. People start cheering. Some dreams are waking up today, and he's got to go louder, right? Right? Hope is waking up, and people start cheering even more. And then, then the kicker. Abundance is waking up. So you get 365 things like that. <laughs> so what about this verse then? I don't know where we are on the slide, so Jan will figure it out for us. The first thing, I know the plans I have for you. Uh, I'm not going to spend any time on this, but this is actually what I feel the most. Um, it just isn't what the topic is, like how this is a lie. In a way, the most important two words in this entire verse are, I know. It, you, I could end there, but I'm not going to. <laughs> um, I know. So hold that for what it's worth. The you in this case, though, and this is where some of the distortion comes up, the you is plural. In the, in the original language. So that, again, with the grab card sentiment, brings up a bit of a problem. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. And then listen to what Ken read, verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts to the exiles, whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem into Babylon. God is speaking to people who are being displaced, and they have faced utter terror before they hear these words. Their city has been absolutely ransacked and destroyed. 
There's death everywhere. And if you lived at that time and you heard the words about your life from Jerusalem to Babylon, you might rather die. That's the context in which God says, I know the plans I have for you, plural. They're entering too, and the verse says this, because in verse 10, when I bring you back from 70 years, he even tells them how long they're going to be displaced. And it's more than a couple of, it's, it's more than a lifetime. It spans a couple of generations. In other words, most of the people who are hearing these words will die in exile. But there is assurance in that I know. God will be with them, even in the exile, even in the sorrow. And then this beautiful, little, basic, simple, but life-giving direction. Build houses, plant gardens, get married, have children. Pray for the good of the city to which you're exiled. That would have been anathema. How are we to pray for the good of this place, this city, in Babylon? You start to see that this verse is a little different than we some, quite different than we sometimes take it. The key is that there's a larger purpose. That the listening is, what does it mean that God knows the plans he has for us? So the second point, there's only two, is that the promise has to do with the future. The future even beyond our lives, there's something greater and bigger for our hope. There's something better than our security, our lifestyle, even our health. This is about the future of a people. And for Christians to hear with that hopeful ear, this is about the future of a people, but this is also about the future of the world. The hope you have been given I know it's not always easy to hear this because we want to have a nice lunch and we want to be able to make car payments and whatever, right? But the hope that you've been given is bigger than that. And not dependent on those things. We so often read scripture in self-centered ways. And in many of my years as a pastor speaking most weeks, um, another confession, the thing I struggle with, I'm looking to you for all my confessions, priest Kim. Um, it's just because he already knows these things, so, so I look to him and he goes, yes, that's right, you did that. Um, I always struggled with, with the direction to speakers to say, then you have to apply it to your life. Um, I, I know it's true, we have to apply scripture to our lives, but you also know it's really self-centered to read scripture that way. You hear this glorious, cosmic, universal, over all time and eternity, over all creation and over all lives, truth, you're being told the character of God, His beauty, His glory. And then your question is, how do I apply this to my life? <laughs> you have to just sit in it. It'll give you new eyes. And, the, and this hope is a hope for the future of the people and the world our question is not first how do we apply this to our lives. Our question first is what does this say about God? And it says that God knows and God cares and God has your, yes, individual, but even better, collective future. So the second thing is that Christians are to be an eschatological people. 
That's, I, if, if I speak consistently, you're going to hear that word over and over again, eschatology. It means, you know, the future of things, not end times, that's a terrible way to think about it, but the fullness of time, where things are headed. What it means to be an eschatological people in this current day is that we don't live our lives by a utopian vision of the left or the right. So I know you'll get this, just give me a minute here. To, the utopian vision, like the, the, you know, here's the perfect world for people in Christian context on the, say, conservative right wing of things, is a little bit, and we can see some of the damage this utopian vision has done, because what happens is if you pick up a moralist vision, here's how we're to live our lives, here's what's wrong with everybody out there, thank God we're around so we can tell them what's wrong with them, Right? And if they become us, then, and you start to have moralist things. You can see it all through. It's a real temptation of one part of the church. That's a utopian vision on the right. The utopian vision on the left is to basically socially engineer everybody. So you shouldn't use that word. That word is really damaging to people. So we're going to kind of X out that word, and we're going to kind of be suspicious about you for a while, too. And you might just be shuffled off to the side. And if we can eventually mold this well enough, we'll get perfect society. Utopian vision on the left, utopian vision on the right. Eschatological people in Christian faith don't live according to those visions, either one of them. They live according to the fullness of time promise that in Jesus Christ all things will be renewed. And neither one of these agendas can do that. They might each have good things in them. My argument, sorry, is that the right has become, you know, we've seen immediately the damage of that in our culture right now, but the left's trying to catch up. But we are guided by this view of the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. I'll give you an example. It's easy. It's like, I get to do this because I'm still kind of new here. Martin Luther King speaking, I have a dream. You remember that, most of you. If you weren't around then, you might remember, um, you'll, you'll remember from a video and hearing it. I was just going to refer to it, but I'll read a bit of it as an example of eschatological thinking in people. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. It says today. <laughs> His future dream is forming who he is that day. I have a dream that one day down in Alabama with its vicious racists, with its governor having lips dripping with the words of interposition and nullification, he's unafraid to call out wrong. One day right down in Alabama, little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today. This is eschatological. And let me tell you why. It's Christian eschatology. I have a dream one day. This is what it means. I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted. Every hill and mountain shall be made low. The rough places will be made plain. And the crooked places will be made straight. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together. That's Christian eschatological vision. And when you hear, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to give you hope and a future. Plans to not harm you, but to prosper you. You can start thinking eschatologically like that. So in this context, 
to the exiles. Things are not as you would choose. Somehow in our lives, sometime in the church, maybe now. Know that however displaced you feel, God is giving you an assurance of his presence. No matter what happens, I have not forgotten you. This is the hope we have for the whole world, and this is why I say it's like a bit of a mantra for me over and over. A Christian ought to be the most hopeful person in the world. We have a hope that all things will be renewed. I'm also aware that some of us were raised with a really dark eschatology that most people burn forever. I don't believe that. I don't believe that scripturally. The renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. I'm not making a statement on heaven and hell here. I'm just saying the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ is a hopeful vision. So, I'll give you a picture to end from the life of Jesus. You know, John chapter 6, Jesus has just fed the 5,000, right? And if you were among those people, you'd be kind of talking about that. There was basically no food. He takes a little bit of food, feeds this huge amount of people. And then, you keep reading, it's so Jesus-like, he, um, he disappears after that. <laughs> He's a terrible televangelist, a terrible marketer. He doesn't know how to build a church, at least as we think of it. If you just fed 5,000 people, I mean, you would print some pamphlets at least. <laughs> he, um, his disciples head on ahead of him, because they're kind of clueless too. And he's got to go across the lake, and he doesn't have a way to get there, so, I mean, he is Jesus. So he goes off, because he's often praying, and they don't know where he is, so they get in the boat, and go, I don't know, I guess he's gone. And they go across, and so then he doesn't have a boat. So then, you know, middle of the night, he's walking on the water, and they get scared. He says, you don't need to be afraid. And the next morning, they're on the other side of the lake, and the crowd, many people in the crowd, and some others who maybe weren't there, have found him, and they gather on the side of the, of the lake again, and he says to them, so he's responding to something they've said to him. He's given them bread, right? And they, they go there, and like you or me, they say, this, what happened there yesterday, that was good. You can make bread out of not bread. How about you just feed me bread forever? Just give, just, just give us our groceries, and we don't have to buy them again. Just keep supplying. Because Jesus says, I tell you the truth. You're here because you had your fill, and you think that that's what this is about. He's not accusing them. He's not being aggressive towards them. He's correcting this distortion. I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, right? We'll have bread forever. And it's then that Jesus, and we're moving to our communion, that through that discourse, Jesus says, and this is what I long to hear, to, to live out of, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. You know, he says also, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, rest for your soul. Take my yoke upon you. Take the things, Jesus says, that I carry, because it's easy and light, and I'll take the things that you carry. This is our joy and our longing and our freedom and peace. So may we have some courage, maybe a bit, to see the truth of these scriptures and how much more beautiful they are than we often make them. Now here again. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. 
plans to give you hope in the future.